Um, the pile of stones is here this morning so that if you get really angry at my sermon, you can come, um, hurdle them at me, and just give me warning, and I'll run out of the building as quick as possible. Um, now, as you can tell, these past weeks, we're in the season of Lent, and we've been reflecting on the preparation of our hearts um, so that we can be um, refreshed and renewed at Eastertide. Um, and there are so many things in our lives that need adjusting so that we can be more aligned with God and His ways. And this morning, um, we're going to speak about trust together. We're going to talk about trust and especially about false trust. And I'd like to begin right away with a word of scripture. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 is a verse you may know quite well. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Can we read that together? Let's do this now. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. It's a wonderful verse, a wonderful idea, and I think um, trust is a terribly important word for us. Um, there's actually a cottage industry around trust, right? There's a, there's a book by leadership guru Stephen Covey called The Speed of Trust. Some of you have read it. You thought about how do I institutionally develop trust so that I can make things happen with other people, right? Uh, there's relational trust, right? Uh, it's been a long time since the movie, the ti- ti- uh, movie Titanic came out, but it was re-released. Remember the key moment where she stands on the prow of the ship and holds her arms out? What does Jack say? Do you trust me? He probably, she probably shouldn't trust him. He's a stranger. But um, there's, uh, financially, we talk about money placed in trust, right? Uh, who are you? You're, it's in trust for someone else, but you're trusting the bank, and maybe banks aren't so reliable these days, are they? Uh, and where are you putting things? And then existentially, right, do I trust this platform to continue to hold me? uh, Or is it going to crumble under the weight of my, uh, under the weight of, uh, no, anyway, is it going to crumble underneath me? What's going to happen here? And so in the context of our faith, there's actually something a little more uh, foundational and important about trust. And that means something like this. Trust is a matter of confidence. Trust, biblically, is a matter of confidence, Uh, The language in the Bible always seems to accompany trusting in someone. So trust is about your footing. I have confidence in my my placement in this spot. It's my grounding. Uh, In certain areas of the New Testament, especially Paul's letters in Romans and the Corinthians, he speaks about boasting. My boasting is in the Lord. Let him who boasts boast in the Lord. And that boasting is a matter of confidence. It's what your mouth says about where your heart is trusting. That's what it means to boast in the biblical language. And in fact, we see this in the book of Jeremiah, uh, chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. And I've just highlighted on the screen the number of times the word boast comes up. Here it says, Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, that I delight in these things, declares the Lord. So this is the Bible's picture of trust, okay? Uh, don't, if you're wise, don't put confidence in your wisdom. Just change boasting for confidence and you're in the language of trust, right? Uh, if you are strong, don't put confidence in your strength. If you're wealthy, don't put confidence in your wealth. But if you're going to put confidence somewhere, put confidence in the fact that you know the Lord, That's the place to have your confidence. So this is how the Bible approaches the question of trust. Now, I think we all understand that trust can be well-placed or ill-placed, right? 
You could put confidence in the right things, or you could put confidence in the wrong things. And I think there's two key ways we can learn what is trustworthy. Ready? Way number one is you can heed the wise warnings of our Bible. The Bible's a book that wants to help you live well, live in a godly way. It's like an operating manual for the human creature and for human communities. If you're going to live well, you want to follow the dictates of this book. Okay? And therefore, the Bible frequently identifies and calls out and, play, and puts into our attention places of false trust and then places of legitimate trust. And actually, we see this hugely in the book of Jeremiah. Okay? And what the Bible is saying is don't trust in these things because if you do, in the worst case, you'll be destroyed. Now, so it's the wise warnings. But the second way to learn about what is trustworthy and what is not trustworthy is to ignore the warnings of Scripture and then learn for yourself the hard way. A lot of us prefer the hard way to learning about these things. But that's the other way to learn. And the principle, I think, is this. If you won't listen to reason, pain will be your teacher. If you won't listen to reason, pain will always be your teacher, either now or later, and then you'll learn. A person comes to you with an exciting investment opportunity. Maybe you've not seen them since high school. And they want you to put money into their startup business. They've got great ideas and they're very salesmanship. And another friend advises you to avoid the investment because it's not trustworthy. But you say, you know what, I'm going to go for it. And then you will learn the hard way through pain that that person was not trustworthy, right? And so you will experience a certain sense of loss. Sometimes the pain from false trust is immediately, Right? If I see that a platform is unsteady and I can reason that this won't hold me, but I choose to stand on it anyway and it collapses, I have discovered through pain that it was not trustworthy. I've learned the lesson myself, right? But more troublesome is if I trust myself to a salvation other than Christ or I say that something else can save me, the pain will be delayed, but it is still inevitable. It may not be immediate, but I will discover it in time. So this morning, we have an opportunity to learn from Scripture about several areas of false trust, seven of them, actually, all that come from the book of Jeremiah. At first, I had one area of false trust, and then I was slipping through Jeremiah, and then there were two and three and four and five, and by the end of it, there were seven, all from the book of Jeremiah. And I thought, well, this appears to be a pervasive theme in how Jeremiah addresses these people. And again, tying in with our season of Lent and with fasting, I want to remind you that our season of fasting, the season of Easter preparation, is meant for self-examination. And that self-examination means finding places of disorder and disordered trust in our lives. It's a perfect time to examine where is my hope placed on things that need moving? Where is my hope misplaced right now so that I can heed the warnings of Scripture, remove the rocks from the soil of my life, and be fruitful for God's work? So let's get moving. Seven areas of trust, of false trust in Jeremiah. Ready? Area number one, do not trust in false gods. Do not trust in false gods. In Christian theology, this should be pretty obvious, don't you think? Pretty straightforward and pretty obvious, but I think we still have to pause and still have to reflect on these things. Let's look together at Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 26 through 28. Here's what it says. As the thief is shamed when he is discovered, so with the house of Israel is shamed. They, their kings, their princes, and their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, You are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, Arise and save us. But where are your gods, which you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in the time of your trouble. For according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. 
Now, in ancient Israel, they were in a time of kind of uh, widespread local religious idolatry. Every surrounding nation around Israel had its own gods, its own patron god, its own set of gods and deities working around it. And there was very clear instruction from Yahweh, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, to have nothing to do with these pagan gods. I don't want you to have anything to do with the gods of the nations. You're to be mine and mine alone. And consistently, they failed. They just failed every time. Now they're trying to worship, and it's not that they've replaced it, they're trying to worship Yahweh alongside all these other gods. They're trying to have their cake and eat it too, right? We've got Yahweh, we've also got Moloch and the other gods of the nations around us. Now this may seem super obvious to us, don't worship other gods. It's kind of like saying, don't sleep with someone who isn't your spouse. It's okay, all right, I get that. Uh, But it's not obvious. We continue to slip into this. We continue to do it. The danger is subtle and pervasive. Uh, A few weeks ago, we talked about this, but idolatry is always a matter of hedging your bets. Often motivated by fear, there's a desire to control our circumstances. I'm afraid. I'm not sure that God is trustworthy. Maybe by hedging my bets, by bringing in these other gods, I can secure something for myself. I can make it safer for my life. I could cover all my bases. And that's kind of the motivation for some of this idolatry. So idolatry is its own way a doubt in the ultimate goodness of God. What if What if a small sacrifice here will help the harvest to come in, right? What if a small compromise here will get me ahead? What if these are trusts in things other than the radical confidence in God, our rock, okay? And that's something, that's the idolatry that we're tempted to. And now today, look, we're really not in a position where our surrounding nations all have like patron gods that are like, they're going to war with the statues of their gods and carrying banners. Like, we're not in that quite scenario, but there is one God who is pervasive. He's present everywhere. He's invisible, but he's impacting every single one of our lives, and his name is Mammon. He's the God of stuff, the God of things, the God who's tempting you to trust in your stuff and in your things and in your wealth and your acquisition to make things better for your life. He's the chief idol of our age. And of course, Jesus says you cannot serve both God and mammon at the same time. It's a crisis of idolatry. But mammon is, of course, very unreliable. He's, in fact, straight up untrustworthy, right? I mean, we don't have to look far in the news to see all the people who lost money this past week who were trusting in mammon. A bank fails, and people can't make payroll. And there was high risk and high reward, but... If they were trusting in mammon, mammon was unreliable. Or maybe you're not in an investment opportunity, but maybe some of you received a nasty health diagnosis in the past six months, and now you're faced with the question of, do I get advanced treatment, or do I keep the wealth that I've, I've given, I've, I'm relying on? The moment your health flips, you know what happens to your money? It's not worth very much, is it? Or what we see in the scriptures are pictures of times of famine. Do you know what happens in times of famine? Everything you own, you will trade for a loaf of bread if you're starving. Money is an unreliable guide, isn't it, when it comes to your health, to your survival? You don't trust in these things. So don't trust in false gods. And a reason we don't trust in false gods is because they will always let you down. They may look nice in the moment, but they are guaranteed to fail. And that's the first warning of the Scriptures. Do not trust in false gods. Area number two from the book of Jeremiah, don't trust in religion. Don't trust in religion. Now, this is a beautiful passage from Jeremiah chapter 7, uh, and I'm going to read it for you now. 7 verses 1 through 7. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, 
Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. So here we have the Israelites who are idolatrous, disobedient, and what they're doing is stating aloud their trust in the existence of the temple. And they're saying what's happening is they're saying, if we have God's temple, what could go wrong with us? The temple is the symbol of God's blessing and God's presence. And of course, if we have this space, then we're secure. Our religious area makes us secure in these ways. And God had promised to bless his people, promised to bless them with land, with inheritance, with wealthy, with a relationship with him. And the temple was the symbol of that promise, the symbol of that location. But the promise came with conditions. They had to love and obey the Lord. Yeah, you get my presence, but you have to be my people. And being my people means there are things you have to do. And so in their trust in outward religions, the, religion, the Israelites showed that they wanted the benefits of the covenant without its responsibilities. We're a lot like them. We like the good feelings of religion without the work. We want the security of knowing God without the responsibility of being his representative people on earth. We want our cake and we want to eat it too. Just like them, we want to keep the gift while neglecting the conditions. None of us do this, right? None of you want the degree, but you don't want to do the hard work that goes into the degree. None of you want wealth, but you don't want the work that goes into generating wealth. None of you want a relationship, but you don't want to do the actual work that goes into making a relationship succeed, right? We do this all the time. We want the gift, and we ignore the conditions. And it's true in our religious life as well. We want the gift of God's presence, but we want to ignore the conditions that he wants you to be holy like he is holy. There are conditions to these things. Now, in the past, uh, in the history, recent history, the past couple hundred years, religious idolatry was maybe represented in something like denominationalism, right? Like, we're really proud to be Alliance, and I'm so glad I'm not like those Presbyterians, okay? Right? Or really proud to be Catholic and really hateful of the Lutherans, those stupid Lutherans, right? I mean, you could do all sorts of things where there was an idolatry in that religious identity, and I, but we've, we've lost a lot of that. We've moved past these things, and I think it's shifted location now. I think our religious idolatry falls into two camps these days. One of the camps is churches who are really proud that they preach the word, and then they neglect the acts of justice toward their neighbor, right? But they're proud of that. They're proud of their Bible. And then there are churches that are really proud that they do acts of justice, but they don't seem to care very much about the word. But I want you to see is that they're the same in the fact that they're trusting in something to save them that is not a full obedience to God. It's not a full obedience to God. They want the gifts without the conditions. And I think with respect to the false trust of idolatry and the false trust of religion, bad religion is just as bad as idolatry because you're making an idol of your worship. Okay, third area of false trust. Ready? Do not trust in the blindness of God. 
Do not trust in the blindness of God. Now, this seems like an odd phrase. Nobody here probably thinks God is blind. Like, none of you actually thinks this is the case. But let me see if I can explain what I mean, because we saw it a second ago in Jeremiah 7, but it's actually even more focused in Jeremiah 22. Here's 22, verses 13 through 17. Woe to him who builds his house without righteousness and his upper rooms without justice, who uses his neighbor's services without pay and does not give him his wages who says, I will build myself a roomy house with spacious upper rooms and cut out its windows, paneling it with cedar and painting it bright red. I know all of you are dreaming, daydreaming of a brightly red-painted cedar house. No, probably not, but... Do you become a king because you are competing in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He pled the cause of the, and the, of the afflicted and needy. Then it was well... Is not that what it means to know me, declares the Lord? But your eyes and your heart are intent only upon your dishonest gain and on shedding innocent blood and on practicing oppression and extortion. Uh, remember that Jeremiah is concerned with this revival, this renewal of God's spirit in the world that hadn't quite taken. There was a, there was a broad movement of saying, we're coming back to the Lord, but it didn't result in uh, practical living of that with justice and life on the earth. And especially in their deeds toward the poor, the downtrodden, and the weak, they weren't right. And so therefore they are trusting in the blindness of God, which is the vain hope that God doesn't actually see us and doesn't actually know what we're doing and kind of turns a blind eye to the things going on in our lives. No, he sees and knows and is aware. In many ways we're like the children who close their eyes and expect that their parents can't see them. Did your kids do this? They shut their eyes really, and they do it really tight. Now you can't see me, right? Because I can't see you. And that's a bit like how we treat God. If we close our eyes to it, maybe he will close his eyes to us. And so we live our lives as if no one's looking. No one looking at how we speak about other people behind their backs. How we think about other people inside our hearts. About how we spend our resources about where God has nudged us toward obedience and we've neglected that obedience, uh, about where our eyes linger. God's watching and he sees. He's not blind. Fourth area, false trust. Uh, do not trust in the power of politics. Do not trust in the power of politics. Every nation state in the history of the world has failed. You want to learn studying history? Every single nation state has failed. Every form of government has failed. It's pretty vain to think that the ones that are walking about right now are going to make it. They're not going to make it. They're going to fail too. Okay? Every geopolitical project in the history of the world has caused immense harm. They've all caused harm. They've all done damage. And every time we place our hopes on politics for change in the human condition, we will be disappointed. Uh, look with me at Jeremiah chapter 37, verses 6 through 10. This is near the end of Jeremiah when uh, Israel's doom is like marching onward any day. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Thus you are to say to the king of Judah, who sent you to me to inquire of me, Behold, Pharaoh's army, which has come out for your assistance, is going to return to its own land of Egypt. The Chaldeans, the Babylonians, will also return and fight against this city, and they will capture it and burn it with fire. 
Thus says the Lord, do not deceive yourselves, saying, The Chaldeans will surely go away from us, for they will not go. For even if you had defeated the entire army of Chaldeans who were fighting against you, and there were only wounded men left among them, each man in his tent, they would rise up and burn the city with fire. So what's going on here? Uh, Israel's existence as a sovereign nation is threatened. There's the Babylonian Empire to the north threatening, coming down. They're threatening to take over. Uh, there's an empire of Egypt to the south, which has some ambitions. And, and what Israel's trying to do is they're trying to game the political system. Maybe if we make a deal with Egypt, we can fight off the Babylonians. But from the narrative of, you know, we're not trusting in God. We're hedging our bets by trusting in Pharaoh, Right? I remember Israel's history with Pharaoh. That wasn't so good. That's kind of like saying, well, you know, maybe we can go back under Pharaoh's service again. That wouldn't be so bad. You have to think, knowing Israelite history, uh, I think that's a pretty terrible idea. But they're hedging their bets. And God says, don't trust in Egypt. Don't trust in Pharaoh. Don't trust in in geopolitics. And this is the condemnation of power. I mean, do you really think political power will save us? Do you think that we could pass the right laws or get the right leaders or finally force those people who won't agree with us into agreement by means of power? Is that the way to make things happen in the world? I think we are relying on political power. Do you think that a coalition or a political party or a new platform or a societal shift will save humanity? That's the rhetoric, right? We've got to do these things or or we're doomed. I hate to break it to you. We're already doomed as a species. The point is not... To trust in power to save us in these ways. There's only one power that can save us. We have to find that space. All right. Don't trust in political power. Number five. Do not trust in others. Do not trust in others. Let me read from Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. There's probably few more bleak verses in Jeremiah. Not just like, woe to you, or not just like, you bait or not. It's like, cursed, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his straight. Now, this can sound misanthropic, right? Misanthropy is the hatred of humanity. I hate people, right? I'm going to live in a cabin alone in the woods because I can't stand people, right? I'm just obeying Jeremiah 17.5, right? That's probably not what's going on here. I don't think God's saying that we should hate one another. It's not saying that we shouldn't live in community and have these relationships. Rather, he's identifying a place where we put the wrong kind of trust in others. And I think I can identify some really important key places where we do this, all right? One of the key places where we put our trust in others is in the language of acceptance and validation. We look to other people to make us feel good about ourselves. We look to other people to validate our choices and our behavior and our decisions. And we can't do that, okay? We know what God's word says about our behavior, but we look to other people to tell us we're okay. Have you realized the permission of friendship sometimes? I mean, you all know, you've got friends who make you richer and stronger and better. You spend an hour with that friend and you come away and you say, man, I'm elevated, I'm more myself, I love this. And you've also got friends who give you permission to misbehave. Sometimes we call them drinking buddies, (laughs) okay? But what you're doing is you're leveraging the acceptance of a group to paste over the behavior that's not so good. We do the same thing with gossip, right? Oh, we had a great talk with so-and-so, 
but all your talk was about somebody else in their life. The talk didn't glorify, but the presence of other people gave you permission. We're looking for other people to validate us. Cursed is the person who puts his trust in that validation, because that's not what God wants. There's all sorts of amazing things happening today with internet validation, people finding the same desires of you. This could be really good and really treacherous, can't it? Like, I could find a group of internet enthusiasts who were fans of the 1987 film Willow with me. That's my favorite movie. It's the midget and the baby and the, oh my goodness, there's dragons and all sorts of great stuff. I love that film. And I can find other people who share the love of that movie with me. How fun is that? But the anonymity of the internet also allows us to find communities of people who share much more dark and prurient and unhealthy and unwholesome desires and give permission to something inside our hearts by means of the blessing of other humans. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind. It's a real danger, isn't it? We trust the people when we look to them for our validation, for our behavior. See, everybody's doing it. It must be okay. See, they accept me. It must be all right. The answer is only, the only validation that matters is God's. Uh, this won't be on the screen, but Isaiah 43, 1 says this. But now, this is what the Lord says, he who is your creator, Jacob, and he who formed you, Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. The one who created you is the only one who can validate you. The one who made you is the one who has the specs on what is right and wrong on your life. And you need his validation and his voice. And if you're listening to other voices, then you are in danger of being cursed. Number six, sixth theory of false trust. Do not trust in wisdom, power, or wealth. Wisdom, power, or wealth. Now, in some ways, this area of false trust expands in, on some of the other ones, right? It expands on the trust in flesh, trust in humans, and the trust in idols. Uh, and these are, uh, each of these things are kind of idols, wisdom, power, and wealth. But let's leave them out as Jeremiah does in chapter 9, which we read earlier, but I'll read it again. 9, 23, and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. We are tempted to trust in our cleverness, Right? I mean, this is what we do when we think God is blind. We're thinking we're smarter than him. We can hoodwink the Almighty. Yeah, good luck, right? Doesn't work, does it? Uh, degrees, the number of degrees that I have won't save me. The Reverend Dr. Jeremy Rios, B.A., M.A., Ph.D. Ooh, that's exciting, isn't it? Worthless. Absolutely worthless. Sorry, I said M.A., it's M.Div. Um, it doesn't do anything, Right? Right theology won't save us. Marking every piece right on the theology quiz isn't the thing that's going to save you either. Uh, besting our opponents won't save us. That's a popular one, right? I owned my enemies on the internet. <laughs> that's a pretty vapid victory. doesn't last. We're tempted to trust in our strength. Strength shows up in different ways, right? The belief that I am impervious, I won't die, I'm healthy. You know one of the ways we trust in our strength in the Vancouver area? We've hidden all our cemeteries. Where are the dead? Used to be when you walked into a church, you walked through the graveyard. Used to be the church had graves down the center aisle. You knew about death every time you came to church, but now we kind of imagine that life will go on interminably. 
It's trust in our strength, isn't it? Vancouver worships exercise and youth. Those are the things that we worship here because they give the lie to our own strength. Our number of online followers won't save us. It doesn't matter how popular you are, how big your brand is. In a generation, or less than a generation, you'll be gone. Your 15 minutes of fame has become 30 seconds of viral fame these days, hasn't it? We're tempted to trust in our wealth. Money can't save you. Financial acumen can't save you. Remember, the, if you don't know it, the parable of the wealthy man in Luke 12. His fields produce this bumper crop. He's excited. He's like, I'm going to build bigger barns and put my feet up and rest forever. And God says, you fool, tonight your life is required of you. And who gets your stuff? Right? You can't keep it. Compared to God's wisdom, our intelligence is wet paper. Compared to God's wealth, all our accumulated wealth is about a penny or less. I remember recently the scientists found an entire planet made of diamond. An entire planet made of diamond. God doesn't need your money. He's got a planet of diamond. Right? He wants you to give because it does something in your heart, not because he needs it. Okay? And all our intelligence is just to God's. I mean, we just don't have anything compared to him. And yet we're tempted, always tempted to trust in ourselves. Okay, seventh and final area of false trust. Do not trust in yourself. Do not trust in yourself. Now, this one challenges us today. There is a rhetoric, a sea of rhetoric tells us to trust your gut. Trust yourself. Listen to your heart. Mm. Right? This is all, um, in its own way, very bad advice because the Word of God says otherwise. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful above else. Your heart gives you important information. It does. It returns stuff, but it's not ultimately not fully reliable. Uh, your gut returns key info. You may have a gut feeling about situations and people, and there's times when you should listen to that gut feeling, but it's not something you should base your entire confidence of life upon. Trust it in its own way. And the reason is simple. You and I are gifted self-deceivers. We are gifted. Remember, do you ever have a, Some of you were in talented and gifted courses, right? You were talented at math. You were gifted at science. But you know where everybody was gifted? Self-deception. Okay? Every single student was gifted in self-deception. And maybe, if simple, here's the way. We lie to ourselves. Where do we lie about ourselves? We lie about other gods. We lie about our religious superiority, don't we? We, rely, we lie about God's blindness. We lie about the power of politics. We lie about the validation of our peers. And we lie about our own self-worth. This may leave you feeling a little helpless today. Okay? But that's where we've got to be. We have to be a little helpless. We have to remove all these false trusts, all these stones that don't belong here so that we can get to the bedrock of trust in God. And let's talk about how we do that. Once again, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Now, very briefly, I want to talk about how to trust together. And very briefly by this, I just want us to highlight this word trust. Remember, trust is this confidence. It's this grounding. It's the placement of your life and your soul on something. And so the first part of trust is to trust 
in. Trust in. Place your trust in God and God alone. Anchor your life on him and on his word. Ground your existence in this kind of like uh, expansive theological language. He's the ground of your being. And you can talk about all sorts of fun ways to describe this. Let him be the rock, the foundation on which your life is built. Trust in the Lord. How do we do this? Well, we do it through praise. It's one of the key ways to throw your trust in the Lord. Through worship, through study of his ways, through learning about these false trusts. Um, through your small groups, uh, through community together, and you find community with other people who are also trying to throw their trust on the Lord. Nothing will help you to trust in the Lord more than other people who are trusting in the Lord. And in this sense, this gets us to the next thing, which is you trust along with. There's a couple ways you're not alone in this, and the most important way you're not alone in this is because you have the power of God's Holy Spirit living within you, helping you to trust. I mean, it's, you don't make trust a work that you have to kind of build yourself up for and get really keyed up. Oh, I'm really going to trust. No, you're going to trust along with the power of the Spirit, which is a kind of surrender uh, to his work and his energy and to his convictions when he shows you places of false trust. When he, 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 he uh, niggles at your heart and says, you know, you can't do that. And you say, oh, okay, that's not my gut. That's the Spirit of God. And you validate it with godly people and you say, okay, I've got to change because I've received this warning. The Spirit, in some ways, is like a building code advisor. Some of you work in construction and building code advisors probably irritate you, Right? They're bureaucratic and obstructionist. They don't help you get things done. Some of you have housing projects and you're waiting on code and all sorts of things. But if you imagine the Holy Spirit as the most benign and wholesome and good building code advisor, all he's saying is, uh, no, that's not safe and that's not right and that's not to code. And let's get these things in order so that the end result will all be right and whole and in place. Maybe see the conviction of the Spirit as just wanting us to build well. Not that he likes us feeling bad. Last way to trust is to trust within. Trust within. And in this, we trust within community. Trust always happens among a community of fellow believers. Now, we're not trusting in each other. My, my faith is not in you. My faith is in God alongside and with you. We're together on this journey. And I think that's what's really important. We keep our focus on God and on his word and his ways. And you know what? Some of us are going to see things more clearly than others. Some of you will see things about God that I can't see. I need you. And there will be times when I see things that you can't see and you need me. We need each other to see more clearly and to walk more faithfully. It's not a one-man show or a one-woman show. That's not the point. Now, I framed everything negatively this morning because I think that's the way Jeremiah does it. But I could just as easily have framed everything positively. Ready? Other gods will fail. Religious practice will fail. God does see everything. Human political power, political power will fail. Other people's words will fail. Your wisdom, wealth, and power will fail. You yourself will fail. The only thing that won't fail is God. And we could put it just as positively as we put it as Jeremiah did it critically. I'm going to invite our musicians to come up and take their places with us as we prepare for a time of worship together. And I want to encourage you, as we worship now, to throw yourself on the Almighty. Trust in him. Affix your eyes on him and his work and what he's done. And as you sing and focus on the words and are present, love the Lord. 
Take a step in trust toward him more and more. And let's sing. Let's sing together. And let's sing in the power of the Spirit. And just before we do that, I'm going to highlight our prayer ministers who are available today. So uh, Leah and Andrea are going to be over here. And I've got Dave and Day are upstairs. Oh. Whatever. Pray with the people with name tags on and you'll be in good shape. Okay? That's good. Uh, Would you stand and let's sing together.